The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome to Spirit of Recovery, offering support for your spiritual growth and addiction recovery. Here's your host, Reverend Lonnie Vanderslice. Welcome to the Spirit of Recovery on Unity FM Radio. My name is Reverend Lonnie Vanderslice and I am your host. So here on Spirit of Recovery, we talk about how spirituality and recovery intertwine and work together to support your growth in your recovery journey. So this program is open to everyone, addicts, alcoholics, family members, friends, coworkers, anybody whose life is touched by addiction. According to recent research, over 46% of the American public has a family member or friend that struggles with an addiction issue. And spirituality is said to be at the root of recovery. So our goal is to carry the message by exploring the many faces of spirituality through the experiences of and lessons learned by those who have taken this journey. We hope that you will not only hear a few things you may already know, but also get new ideas and information, perhaps some new perspective, and maybe even some tips that you can put to practical use in your own journey. And we know that you will deepen your own walk as a result. So please tell your friends about the show and invite them to join us either online or by downloading a podcast. There's over seven years um, of recovery-oriented podcasts on the web. You can get these through Stitcher, iTunes, Alexa, or just search for Spirit of Recovery online radio on the web. And so we want to say thank you to everybody that's joining us today. And so today, our guest is Charles P., someone who finds his recovery and connection with his higher power through the spiritual principle of service. Charles is a native of West Virginia, the senior minister at Unity of Birmingham, and has recently retired from the Alabama Army National Guard. Besides uh, a father and a grandfather, he's also recently remarried and openly shares about his 15 years in recovery. And so thank you, Charles, for joining us here today to share your story of experience, strength, and hope. Well, thank you for having me, Lonnie. It's really an honor to be here. Now, we're really grateful that you're that you're willing to do this. Everybody has such a unique individual experience in how they come to their understanding of their own higher power and um, you know when people are willing to share it gives it gives each of us another another clue on our own path and so um, you've literally been to the other side of the world and back even just recently since you've returned from active deployment when you were a little boy growing up in that small town did you ever dream that this is what your life would look like today Absolutely not. I mean, when in the era that I grew up in, um, the idea of, say, flying in a jet airplane just seemed beyond the possible. I remember we had a little teeny airfield in my hometown that was eventually uh, bulldozed under for our mall. Um, but when I was uh, probably five or six years old, my mother took my sister and I down there, and she took us on a, our, my first airplane ride, and it was called Penny a Pound, because the pilot of the little teeny single-engine plane would take people up for a penny for every pound they weighed. Wow. So, yeah, so he, we got an airplane ride, you know, my mother and my, and my sister and I, probably, you know, for a total of less than $3. That's amazing. <laughs> Right. So you've been, yeah. <laughs> so, so you you yeah, like? I, mean, I was trying to dig to China in my backyard. You know, that I, I I had no clue that that my life would end up the way it, it has. So mm-hmm. yeah. So Very can good. you talk a little bit about those early experiences and how they they shaped your worldview? Oh wow, absolutely. Um, we really kind of grew up in the in the Baptist church there in uh, in Vienna, West Virginia. 
Um, at least my mother, my sister and I did. My, you know, my mother brought us. My father was, um, he, he really was um, not uh, a religious practitioner. He, he used to joke about the, the building falling down if he would walk through the doors. And I can probably count on the fingers of one hand with fingers left over uh, how many times I actually saw him in there. And it was really only to see programs that um, my sister and I were in as we were growing up. But um, it, it was a central part of, of our social experience. And, you know, pretty much everyone we knew went to church of some kind. And almost everybody there was, you know, your typical white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. Um, you know, Catholics were viewed with some, something akin to suspicion. Um, I remember when I was in ninth grade, the, uh, the my, my, you know, quote, girlfriend, unquote, um, she was Catholic, and my mom was really concerned that she might be trying to, you know, seduce me to the dark side, uh, as it were. But um, it, it was, you know, if you were Baptist or Methodist or, you know, maybe Lutheran, um, you, you were in the OK Club. Um, and that was pretty much, it was kind of accepted. It, it was sort of just the way things were. And from a very early age, I had this kind of disquieting sense that, I was on the outside looking in because all the stories that they told me never quite added up for me, not even when I was a very little kid. And mm-hmm. I wanted very much to believe what they were telling me, but I just wasn't, I just wasn't buying what they were selling um, from, from a really early age. So that, that was kind of where my spiritual you know, problems and my spiritual journey began. Your disconnect. Yeah. So did you feel like you were on the outside looking in, or just that was an observation because you didn't buy what they were selling? Much. You know, I, um, it, it, I kept trying to understand it. And, and, you know, it wasn't like I was a slow kid. I was, I, I um, was always uh, an avid reader and, uh, you know, was, was, was reading ahead of grade level, and I, I understood concepts and, and ideas, and, you know, I would look things up in the dictionary and, um you know, I, I got stuff like that, but there, that was a story, or you know, those stories, uh, particularly the ones about Jesus, that it just didn't add up for me. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I just didn't know of any kid that was perfect, and this whole idea that he he was a person who was really not not really a person because he was also a god, you know, um, that that didn't make much sense. And then the whole thing with you know him having to, to die. Um, and then us having to believe that he died, but then undied, um, or else we would, you know, go to hell forever. I, I just, it was like they lost me, you know, like paragraphs ago. I, I just, you know, it's like I, I'm something's wrong here. I, I, I can't quite put my finger on what it is, but it just doesn't seem real. And I, I just. You know, I, I thought it was going to, I thought maybe they knew something I didn't. And I, even when I was 12, I went and got baptized thinking that, that would help. And uh, it really didn't. And, and by the time I was probably about 16, I was self-identifying as agnostic, even though I was still going to church and singing in the choir. So it was still a big piece of your of your socialization. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I, I stayed in the church all the way through my senior year in high school. Um mm-hmm. It, it was just, you know, it was a small town in West Virginia. We all grew up together, and that was just one of the points of contact that we had. Mm-hmm. And in, in, I don't know how usual or unusual this is, but I had some friends that I mostly un, only hung out with when I was at church things. Um, you know, there were, like, different different cliques and groups and, and, and whatnot. And, you know, I just had a group of kids that was about my age that I'd grown up with in church. And when we did church stuff, those were the kids we hung out with. Mm-hmm. And, all, and a lot of us had other friends that we hung out with doing different school activities. Um, but but we still, you know, we, we liked hanging out with our church friends. And so, so did I. You know, I, I enjoyed, uh, I loved those people. And um, I didn't, I you know, didn't want to cut them out of my life. But I remember my um, my freshman year in college, I had come home, and I, I went to church with my mom on Mother's Day. And um, they had a, a new minister there who was apparently only there for a short period of time. But um, he was not the guy that I had, you know, grown up with as a child or then the guy that had been there when I was in, uh, like, late junior high and high school. 
and he starts off on uh, you know a story and he's essentially telling a story about a woman committing adultery mm-hmm. in the bible on mother's day and i said that's it i'm never coming back here and i never did i mean i eventually just a couple of years ago i was i was visiting west virginia and i just dropped into the church to say you know Hey there, I'm an alumnus, and now I'm, I'm a sort of a different kind of minister, and got shown around. But uh, that's, I mean, there were a lot of years in between those two times of me darkening the doorsteps of that church. And, uh, you know, it made, it made it very clear to me um, that I really never wanted to go back to that church, certainly not as a, uh, as a congregant. You know, a lot of people in, with addictions, you know, alcoholism, etc., talk about this disconnect between the, the God of their childhood and their um, lack of understanding and their feeling on the outside looking in and and even living a double life and you mentioned having one set of friends from church and another set of friends for you know other things yeah and you know I think even if we look at at least the way that I kind of uh, personally explain heaven and hell to people. To me, heaven is when we are, you know, in full realization of our oneness with spirit. And so then hell is when we are fully believing the illusion of separation from spirit. And, you know, that that idea that, uh, you know, we're really buying into the fact that we're separate from spirit was one that drove me from early childhood. And, you know, as, as I've said more than once at a 12-step meeting, you know, it was like I have a God-shaped hole in me, and I kept trying to fill it by pouring, you know, booze into it, and that's not a, a good solution. <laughs> so I, I needed to find, you know, the God that's in me all along, and mm-hmm. it, it took me a long time, but, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I finally got there, thankfully. Yeah, no kidding. You, you had shared with me earlier that um, that you had... Um, that your your there was addiction in your family as well that had had kind of set the stage for church being a sanctuary away from all of those things that were going on. Yes, that's true. Um, my mother had basically been dealing with addiction her whole life. Her mother had been um, had had a, was was an an addict or had addictive behavior. Um, she had apparently nearly drowned when she was a young girl, uh, maybe 13, 14, she'd gone swimming with her sisters and had uh, dove into the local swimming hole and hit her head and was under the water for a while. After she came back out, she was never the same. And she drank and did drugs back in, you know, back in the day. Um, I remember the story that um, she apparently was not terribly impressed with my father. And so my dad would buy her off by bringing her a bottle of vodka when he would go to ask my mother out. Um, so that just kind of gives you an idea. Um, so then my mom went from her to my dad, who, um, you know, I'm not, sh- I'm not sure we would uh, technically classify him as an actual alcoholic, but he displayed a lot of the tendencies. Um, he, 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 I think he was a blackout drinker on several occasions, um, he certainly became violent a lot when he drank. Uh, in later years, he he got to the point where he could turn it off. You know, he, he would have three or four drinks and quit, which is you know nothing not an ability I have developed ever. Um, but it, his behavior always changed. He always was less pleasant to be around. So he he might be what the book would have called one of those heavy hitters. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it, uh, it he definitely became someone that we didn't like being around. So we we went to church um, where where he didn't go, and that was the only place in the town he didn't go really. Um, so we were we were there on Sunday morning, we were there Sunday evening, we were there Wednesday evening, and you know pretty much any other time that someone would ask my mom to volunteer to do something, she would say yes. So I, I was at church a lot. Um, so it's you kind were of funny. I was just going to say there's there's a story about my sister and I when we were like maybe three and four. And we were in the, the, the teeny babies choir, you know, the very youngest choir that there was. And I think it was either for Christmas or Easter was one of those programs. And um, they had given me a microphone to say two or three words, 
you know, as part of the program. But my sister thought if I had the microphone that she ought to have the microphone too. And we started, you know, fighting over the microphone in the Baptist church. And, you know, I, I kind of get to say with, with some glee that, you know, I, I finally won <laughs> since I'm a minister now. So I finally got the microphone at the church away from my sister. Anyway. So, so um, you got to the end of your high school career, and did you stick around town? What happened at that point? Cause well, at that point, were... I, went to, um, I went and did my undergraduate work at uh, West Virginia University, um, and I absolutely had zero to do with the church for a long, long time after that. Um, I, I became seriously, uh, seriously addicted um, when I was in college. Uh, I mean, I, I barely made it through in five years, and I was studying theater, so it wasn't like the course load, you know, was... It took a lot of time. I mean, you know, you'd, you'd do rehearsal and performances and whatnot, um, and some of the classes were, were tough, but it wasn't like I was majoring in astrophysics, for crying out loud, you know. Um, but yeah, I, I majored in partying, basically, at WVU, which a, a lot of us did. And then I went from there to Los Angeles. <laughs> so <laughs> I kind of went out of the frying pan and into the fire. Um, it's funny, I, I was, uh, I remember when I was uh, 26 is when I joined the National Guard. And uh, at a certain point in basic training, um, they would have everybody come out and you know put us in formation, and and before we were allowed to go to the first church service, they would divide everybody up kind of by denomination or whatever. Um, you know, like generic Protestants go over here and Catholics go over there and uh, Mormons go over there and and you know Jews go over there and whatnot. So they're dividing everybody up, and at the end of the thing, I'm the only guy standing out there by myself. And um, our, our drill sergeant, who <laughs> was kind of a scary individual, um, you know, c- comes up and gets right in my face and says, What's the matter with you? Don't you believe in the good Lord, boy? And I just said, Drill sergeant, I don't, I'm not sure what I believe, but I don't believe in any form of organized religion. They're like, Well, you go stand over there, you know. And uh, that was, you know, it was, it was scary to admit it, but that was, that was the truth for me right then. Um, I didn't know what to believe anymore, but I, I had um, you know, I, I'd done some studying in high school about other you know other religions, and I just hadn't found anything that really worked for me. And you know, I, I was really um, I was really kind of a lost soul there. You know, I I, um, I tried all sorts of things that had nothing to do with spirituality to fill that God shaped hole in me, and um, none of them really worked. Did um, enlisting in the National Guard was that part of a? I'll try something else. Um, you well, know, it's to, interesting. To fix this? Um, I, I had started my um, my master's degree at the California Institute of the Arts, probably one of the three or four most liberal schools in America, and uh, so I, I get I get there and I go to move into my room with you know I had a roommate. And I open the door of the room, and on the opposite wall, there's a picture of a tank. And the caption on the poster says, there's one tactical principle that remains unchanged. That is, to use the means at hand to inflict the maximum amount of death wounds and destruction on the enemy in the shortest possible time. General George S. Patton, Jr. Just so happened that I ended up moving in with, you know, probably the only kid in the National Guard uh, at CalArts. And wow. my whole first year there, my roommate just kept saying, Charles, we got to get you in boots, <laughs> which is funny, you know, because my dad had been in the National Guard, and I'd grown up around it. Um, when I was a kid, I'd gone to annual training with him. Um, he had been a battalion commander, and uh, the, the senior officers in his battalion, when they would go up to Camp Dawson, could bring their families, and they had a couple of chalets up there um, that they would put us up in for the two weeks that they were there. So it's kind of like going to camp. Um but he, he retired in 1969. Um, I graduated from high school in 1978, which was, you know, as, as you well know, three years after we got kicked out of Vietnam in, in humiliation. And so even though, you know, from my family history, um, being part of the military was, was kind of in there, uh, just that time in, in history, you know, in, in America, it was not really considered a, a thing to do. 
Um, but by 86, you know, I was still kind of bouncing around, didn't know what to do. And uh, I was also starting to rack up a pretty um, considerable amount of student loan debt. So my recruiter lied to me, and <laughs> like everybody else's, and told me that I would qualify for the student loan repayment program. And, uh, you know, my, my roommate kept encouraging me and, you know, saying, hey, you know, come back and next year we're going to have a great time, blah, blah. And so as it turned out, not only did I not uh, qualify for the student loan repayment program because I was in grad school, but my roommate didn't come back to school. He went active duty. So uh, I came back from basic training, and I, I then became the only student at Cowards in the National Guard. Uh, yeah, these these uh, journeys that we take, you know, so many people, right. um, we, it's not like we laid out our life and said, first I'm going to do this and then I'm going to do that. Yeah. You know, we we kind of uh, wander about with no sense of direction. If anything, we're moving away from, well, I don't want to do that. Well, I'm not going to do that again, you know, that propels us forward instead of being drawn forward. Boy, that's the truth. You know, we're living a life based on repulsion instead of propulsion, you know. Yeah, so so you get your got your degree and um your advanced degree and you're in the National Guard mm-hmm. and you're still an active drinker. Yes, yes, very much. And um shortly after I uh, got out of Cal Arts, I met the mother of my children and we rather suddenly and unexpectedly began a family. And um Long story short, with a lot of the embarrassing parts cut out, uh, basically when she got pregnant, and of course she wasn't drinking, she kind of insisted that I join her in that misery and and not drink as well. And for about the first seven years that we had a family, um, I managed not to drink. Uh, I I was not necessarily entirely sober, as we know sobriety, but... um, I wasn't drinking, and I, I wasn't in any kind of program. Um, I did, at, at you know, about halfway through that, start going to um, going to church. When my kids were uh, toddlers, um, my oldest Siobhan had uh, she was she was I guess maybe about four, and Colleen was still in diapers. Her her younger sister. Um, but uh, Robin, their mother, said to me, well, Charles, you know, we, we, we agreed we'd take the kids to church when they got old enough. So um, I, I know you don't ever want to go back to the Baptist church, but I used to go to this church in Birmingham with Aunt Paula. It's called Unity, and if we can find one here, I think you'll like it. We were, we were living in uh, central Florida at the time. So, you know, interesting sub-fact of my life, I am now the senior minister of a church that my ex-wife found out about Unity, and then she's the one who introduced me to Unity. So I'm, I'm essentially ministering the church that was responsible for me being in Unity to begin with. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, yeah. So it's funny in how this, that stuff works out. I know it. I know <laughs> it. I think we call those God things. Right. So yeah, the God thing. In this journey, you had an extended period of dry time. Did you ever have a sense that you actually had a problem or an issue or a or an addiction or that it was something that needed to be dealt with or that it was a you spiritual know, uh, illness? The, well, the thing, the thing is, I, I'm really positive that I knew that I had a problem, which was why I wasn't drinking. You know, I think I, you know that that part of me part of me knew probably from the time I was around twenty that. Um, that I'm an alcoholic, Um, that I just just don't know how to quit when I start. Um, And that was not something that, you know, I I could afford to do. But like, you know, most untreated alcoholics, eventually um, I I went back out there, you know, thinking, well, hey, I've got this thing licked, you know. I'm obviously in great shape here. And... um, it's funny. It was about um, about seven. The kids, my oldest, was about seven years old, um, and I had been having a really tough time at uh, work, and was really, you know, like I, I either need to get to a shrink and get some kind of, you know, calm me down pills, or I, I need to go get something to drink. And, and being kind of, you know, lazy and cut to the chase, I was like, well, let's just do the, you know, follow the path of least resistance. I'm just going to stop the liquor store and grab a bottle and take it home. 
And when I got home, um, the kid's mom told me, you know, that's, that's likely to be the end of our marriage. And I just laughed it off and said, ah, don't worry about it. And uh, it, it took about another six, seven years, but that was, in fact, the end of our marriage. So this um, this disease process is really a slow descent if it's not accelerated with other other substances along the way. And what I have learned about that is that it's pretty much this separation that you talked about, this feeling apart from and this feeling different than and this feeling not included and living alone in your head. Yeah, and you know, for some of us, what alcohol does is it allows, uh, and I'm, I'm a fairly introverted processor. You know, I, I, like, like most ministers and, and most people who have been in the, in the theater, at least, on, you know, the people that get up on stage, you know, I enjoy an audience as much as the next person, right? Um, but I, I'm really an introverted processor in terms of how I deal with, how I come to things, how I think. And, and um, you know, when I have been in teaching or, or preaching or, you know, when I'm in theater, when I've been on stage, when I'm done with that, I need to go get by myself. So mm-hmm. whereas some of us, when we get into addiction, will use uh, alcohol to kind of become able to handle being with other people, and for a while I did that. Um, I would sort of become like you know Mr. Life of the Party there, and and you know just thought I was I was hysterically funny and charming. Um, as my disease progressed, what ended up happening was I ended up spending more and more time alone until by the, you know the time it was over with, um, I basically drank completely by myself all the time. Um, I, I would just I lived in a fantasy world, and uh, I thought they liked me there. But it was it was it was really killing me slowly. Um, but but it, it was speeding up. And it, you know it's funny. I'm I'm deeply grateful to my uh, my kid's mother for um, insisting that I leave because that was that was the the bottom that I needed to hit. I I did not need to be enabled anymore. I didn't need someone to say, well, it'll be okay, or oh, just do this for a while. I, I really needed a consequence. Um, I needed a painful consequence because without that, I was not going to change. And I, I really think she saved my life. I had a, a guy, um, he grew up literally two blocks down the street from me. We were born less than two months apart. Um, his dad was in the insurance business. My dad was in the real estate business. We went to the same grade school. We played on the same uh, teams. We sang together in choirs. We actually sang together in a barbershop quartet for a couple of years. We went to the same you know, junior high, high school. We both went to WVU. Um, he drank himself to death when we were in our early 40s. And his second wife watched him do it. Mine threw me out and provided me a consequence that changed my life. And for that, I'm, I'm really, really grateful. Yeah, it's amazing what turns out to be our turning points. Yeah, it sure is. So you had found unity at this point, and you had been dry for several years, seven years, I think you said, and then um, continued for another six or seven before you had that consequence happen. Mm-hmm. What what was your journey from that point? And and I have to tell you, we're about I don't know about a minute or two away from a break. So, um, you know, I'm I'm thinking that there's a big gap there. You got thrown out. Now what? Right. And you know, the the, the first thing I had to do was kind of scrape my life back together. So when I went when I initially went into recovery, I I, I you know threw everything in the inventory at it. I went to a shrink. I went to group. I, I started doing um, 12-step meetings. Uh, they put me on antidepressants. You know, if they'd have told me to go to an inpatient program, I would have, I would have done that. I didn't. I did my, uh, my recovery as an outpatient. Um, but I basically just started doing, you know, whatever the nice people told me to do. And um, things started getting better. And they started getting better noticeably and quickly, which I'm really grateful for. Um, although my marriage did end up ending, uh, even though I, I got from the, the morning she told me I had to leave, I never had another drink. Mm. But, you know, it was, it was the end of my marriage either way because we had all, I had already um, lost her trust 
mm-hmm. and lost her love. And mm-hmm. those were two things that she just couldn't get back for me. Um, and that's I, perfectly understandable. But so um, I'm gonna for a couple of months there, you... I was trying to do it. You know, I, I swear I had in the back of my mind that I would save the marriage. But about two, three months into it, I realized I was saving me. Yeah, and yeah. It, that kind of changed my outlook. So we're going to stop right at that point because it's time for us to take a short break. And when we come back, we'll start with the serenity minute, which is just a brief moment to focus on a positive thought. And then my guest, Charles P., and I will continue our conversation. So please stay with us. Unity Online Radio brings you inspiring programs on a variety of spiritual topics. Giving to the network is now easier than ever. Simply text Unity Radio to 72727 from your smartphone. You can make a one-time or recurring donation. Your gifts help us offer enriching spiritual programs that reach listeners around the world. Text Unity Radio to 72727. Thank you for your support. Does the idea of being a vegetarian or a vegan intrigue you? Is it something you've pondered? Listen each week as Victoria Moran, author of Main Street Vegan, shows you how to make the shift to a sustainable lifestyle for both you and the planet. Each week you'll learn about the latest on the vegan life. It's not just for celebrities and moguls, but for people just like you who want to look and feel amazing, eat extraordinary food, help animals, and create a physical body perfectly attuned to spiritual growth. Guests will range from unity ministers to vegan authors, activists, physicians, chefs, and even some of those glittery celebs. There'll be recipes, ideas, tips for going vegan at your own pace, and ways to make a difference for animals and the planet at every meal. Tune in Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Central Time for Main Street Vegan, only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Did you know that the Buddha gave us the formula to create a beautiful, abundant life? Did you know that Jesus gave us the formula to create a beautiful, abundant life? Did you know that both these masters taught exactly the same thing? And guess what? They did not teach the law of attraction. They taught the great paradox of prosperity. You can have anything you want. Why, you can have things you don't even know you want, but not by wanting them. Instead, put your attention on the vibrant presence of the divine within. Do that and your life will change. It has to. That is the natural order. Want to crack the code on the great paradox? Get Janet Connors' The Lotus and the Lily. Available everywhere great books are sold. Welcome back to Spirit of Recovery with Rev. Lonnie Vanderslice. Welcome back to Spirit of Recovery. We're glad you're with us today. And if you're just joining us, my name is Reverend Lonnie Vanderslice, your host, and our guest today is Charles P. We've been talking about his journey that that has um, led him into his own spiritual experiences in his recovery. And before we get back into his story, we're going to pause and take a moment just to center ourselves in this serenity minute. So I invite you to take a moment to take a deep breath, to relax, and to focus on this constructive thought. I am spiritually fulfilled when my unique gifts are dedicated to the service of others. Now let's just take a few moments.
We want to say thank you for joining us in this Serenity Minute. And so, Charles, before the break, you were sharing about this turning point you hit and how your wife really, your ex-wife really saved your life when she threw you out. Yes, she did. And, you know, it it began a whole sequence of events that, um, you know, has, has ended up with me sitting here in Birmingham, Alabama. Um, one of the very first things that happened was the following weekend, I had drill, and um, I, I was emotionally a wreck. I was uh, just moving out of my house, um, you know, moving away from my kids, moving away from you know, moving away from from my uh, then wife, and um, I was I was having a tough time. And uh, apparently, uh, you know, one of the guys at the unit called our battalion chaplain, and. Uh, he he came down and you know hunted me up and said you know hey how would you like to have some lunch you know I just happened to be in the neighborhood and I was like yeah y- you bet and during our conversation um, he asked me he said well you know do do you think you're an alcoholic and uh, I said yeah yeah Padre I really think I am and he admitted to me uh, some time after that that uh, I was I was the only person that ever answered that question that way. Um, but I really, I mean, I, I, I couldn't deny it anymore. It was, it was playing as a nose on my face. What was interesting is that, that, you know, that chaplain and I ended up becoming pretty good friends. And um, through him, I ended up meeting another chaplain who uh, kind of planted the idea in my mind that because the Florida National Guard was short on chaplains, you know, gee, maybe I, I, maybe I could do that. And that's, that's a couple of years into my recovery. But um, that was really kind of what led me down the path to ministry. Um, so it, it's um, you know it's, it's funny how those things sort of snowball. About that time uh, was also the time that our little uh, our little church in Kissimmee, our little Unity Church there, uh, folded up, and I started going to Christ Church Unity up in Orlando, and. Um, it took me a little time. I was, you know, both grieving my uh, my marriage and, you know, sort of the death of my church uh, in Kissimmee for a while. But um, once you get into 12-step, you know, the idea of service becomes central to your existence because, you know, if your sponsor is anything like mine, they were telling you, you need to go and do something, whether it's clean the ashtrays or, you know, make the coffee or stand at the door and, and, and greet people when they come in. Um, chair a meeting, you know, get get out of your own head and, um, you know, try to help somebody else because that's that's the way that we recover. And um, that that has certainly been you know the case for me, but it also applied to my life in the church. And so you know, pretty soon after I got up to Christchurch Unity, I you know started volunteering, and I you know was singing in the choir, and then I volunteered on the platform. And you know, that's that's another place where one thing sort of led to another. Um, I also remember about that time um, right after I got to CCU, um, they were offering a class on uh, Finding Yourself in Transition, uh, Bob's book. And uh, I thought, you know, that's a, <laughs> very timely for me. And ended up in the class uh, with, I think it was three other guys, and we were all going through divorce at the same time. Um, so that was, um, it was really helpful for me. And it helped deepen my 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 identity as a unity truth student um you know up until up until i got sober unity was basically a nice church that uh i i didn't disagree with so much you know I, it was like they didn't say stupid things that i was like there's no way that could happen um it it it, it sort of worked for me at that level but you know that like i could i could not only stomach, but really enjoy my my one hour a week in church. But it wasn't really changing me the other 167 hours a week because I, I because I had alcohol to do that for me. Um, but once I got sober and I started working the steps, I, I also began paying you know more attention to the the principles that were being taught in church, and I began to realize that. You know, some of the things that had really not worked for me, the whole idea of heaven and hell, 
and you know this this dude that lives on a cloud named God and this dude that lives in the bowels of the earth named Satan that that's not really quite the way it works that heaven and hell are states of consciousness all that stuff kind of started clicking for me and you know the fact that that in recovery we talk simply about a higher power and we leave open ended you know kind of what that is for you um as a kid, it had always been way too open-ended because, you know, what everybody else was trying to teach me, you know, wasn't working. And nobody had come up with anything that really worked. But as I began to kind of really understand the idea of God as you know, the universe, everything in it, all that lies behind it, and the laws by which it operates, um, I thought, wow, you know, that's kind of hard to argue against. <laughs> So it worked hand in hand while you were developing your concept of your own higher power, the unity principles. Absolutely, yeah. And you know, I'm very grateful that the people that cooked up AA didn't try to hitch the wagon to any particular religion. That 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 I think would have been the death of it, mm-hmm. and it might have been the death of me. But the fact that you know they were able to keep it open ended. And that I had just happened to stumble into unity um, when my kids were, you know, about church age. Um, and, I, and again, I had my, my, you know, their mother, my former wife, to thank for that. Um, you know, I, I really got lucky and, um, you know, or, or blessed, <laughs> depending on how you want to look at the universe. Um, but so that was, was about... Was, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, so that was about 12 or 14 years into your unity journey. Uh, maybe a little earlier. Um, I think I began Unity sometime around, mm, what would it have, that would have been 93-ish, late 92, early 93, somewhere in there, and I got sober in 2002, so... Nine yeah. years or so. Well, what what interests me about that is that, um, you know, a lot of people try to get sober with God. And they right. try in the church of their origin, and they try other people's churches, and they try lots of different spiritual paths. And sometimes that comes up lacking until they find that connection with their own conception of the higher power. And I think when we were talking about this earlier, you may have mentioned that there was – I think it was the element of service that you said that really sealed the deal for you. Yeah, it did. And I'll tell you, there's another there's another piece of this, and, and it kind of goes to how I was able to negotiate between um, unity and 12-step and is that – there's still a lot of you know what what we would can we would consider you know a kind of old school language um a lot of separation theology it feels like in the way that the big book was written but when i began sort of you know re-listening to it in my mind and when it talks about me i think of like you know the little m me and when it talks about god uh, I, I think of my higher self, my Christ self. Um, I was able to do that translation, and, and it works completely well. And there, there are places in the in the text where, you know, it seems to make it very clear that we find God within. Um, mm-hmm. So, unity and and twelve step in that way were completely seamless for me. I've, I mean, I've had other people ask me, "Well, how do you how do you reconcile that?" Because it looks like you're asking, you know, for God outside of you for help. Um, but, but for me, just simply making that substitution, you know, that when they talked about, you know, the problems, you know, I had little in me, I think of that as my ego. And when we, you know, look to the higher power, I think of that as my Christ. Um, and, and, you know, in, in some cases, you know, all that lies beyond, um, that worked very well. And, that really made a huge difference for me. But yeah, the the thing that really made a big difference was really getting into service. And, I, and honestly, um, as, as we talked about earlier, for me, that was that's the thing that makes the twelve step program different from anything that that people tried in the you know thousands of years before. That some of the people who drank you know drank themselves to death. 
um, that they hadn't really counted on. You know, that people would try to say, well, here, God will fix you. Turn yourself over to God. And God didn't fix those people. Or they would try any number of other treatments, you know, take them, take them away into, you know, the mountains or into the desert or, you know, have them go sweat a lot for a month or whatever it is. And then people would come back, and as soon as they got back into their regular lives, they'd go back to doing the same things that they always did because they weren't really changing themselves from within. But the the thing that they added when they began AA, you know, when, when, when Bill W. and Dr. Bob sat around that table in, in Akron, was, you know, it was, it was one person helping another, one person doing a service for another. And it wasn't necessarily, you know, for, for the person being served, it was for the person doing the serving. It was, it, was, it was that person giving service who was being healed, you know, as much as, if not more, than the person being served. And, and maintaining that idea that a life of service can be a life of sobriety. You know, um, and and that has been kind of the way that I've gone, and that was you know really one of the things that that got me into ministry. Um, I'd been sober for I guess it'd been about two three years uh, because it was 2005, and our unit was in preparation to go overseas. So. I'm at the armory, and one of the, sta- the state chaplains, he was a colonel, um, I, was, I was in the latrine, and the colonel walks in. And I, I, I said, you know, hey, chaplain, you know, how you doing? And I'd met him through Father Cecil, who had been my battalion chaplain, you know, when I first got sober. Um, and we struck up a conversation, and he mentioned that, um, you know, the next year he was going to have, he, he only had nine chaplains in the whole state of Florida out of 23 slots that he had, and seven of his nine chaplains were going to be deployed. Two of them were non-deployable, one of whom was Father Cecil. And he was only going to have those two chaplains to cover the whole state. And I got to thinking about it, and they weren't going to be deploying me in, in my MOS. That's my military occupational specialty. They were going to have us doing you know something completely different. And I thought, well, gee, you know, I've, I've been kind of working this thing, and, and I, I really feel like I could I could help somebody else out. I've I've I've, I've got something going on here, and I, I might be able to give something. So let me sort of explore this, and that's a whole other story. But you know, one thing led to another, and I did not end up becoming a chaplain, but um, I did end up uh, becoming an ordained minister. And so it, it, it certainly was uh, that that chance encounter was a uh, was a big turning point for me. So it's kind of like that seed that that our co-founder Charles Fillmore talks about, and Eric Butterworth expanded on that got planted and then grew. That seed idea. Yeah, it really is. And it's funny because I just knew I wanted to be of service. And I really felt like as much as I'd worked the process and I'd really kind of started really devoting myself to you know working more in church as well as to my recovery program, because I figured it was all part of the same thing, you know, Um that that being of service and keeping my nose clean and just do you know it's like if I'm in church instead of some place where I could get a drink I'm much less likely to get drunk right um, and then I and I'm you know it just it, it just seemed like I'm I'm safe here you know but it was also just expanding me and, and, and growing me and um, so after I decided that you know yeah i'm 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 never going to be able to make it through a a traditional seminary because i just can't stomach the theology um but i will and eventually become a unity minister i started taking our see classes and i started those in 2006 i think it was february 2006 they had um some classes over at unity of melbourne i think they do it i think they still do an see week every year and um, I got my first four SEE classes, and it was off to the races from there. But it was it was it was great because it really opened my mind up in ways that simply you know attending and volunteering at my at my local church um, didn't do. Of course, <laughs> being being exposed to you know Paul Hasselbeck and Tom Thorpe um, was was kind of a whole different introduction to uh, to Unity theology uh, than what I was used to. So there was that as well. But so what was it, the most? 
Go ahead. What was the most enlightening, um, eye-opening concept that you grasped onto? Wow. You know, I, I, I would have to say the idea that there really is no separation and that even the way that I speak can subconsciously make me believe that there is. And you know, you know how Paul is about the words that we use. Mm-hmm. And it, it was really funny because once I began, you know, kind of monitoring the way that I was talking, you know, the, the way that we are taught spirituality, you know, from a traditional point of view, from a very early age, really affects our worldview. And it, it can reinforce that belief that we're somehow separate from God, even when we're beginning to grasp the idea and understand the idea that, no, we're not. But that, that language and our use of it continuing to reinforce that separation you know, it just, it, it, it slows us down and it, you know, it'll, it'll come back and haunt us. So what's your most favorite technique for overcoming that at this point? Uh, do you have a spiritual practice of some type that helps you resolve that? Wow. Um, meditation, you know, probably more than anything else. Um, I've been meditating, you know, since, since then, um, at least. Uh, and I meditate just about daily. Um, I try to do it daily, but every once in a while I'll have a day that uh, just I, I get overrun and I you know realize as I'm laying down to go to sleep. Hey, wait a minute! I didn't meditate today. But uh, it's fun. I remember I was interviewed um, right before my first deployment ended uh, back in 2010, and the public affairs sergeant was uh, kind of warming me up for the interviewer that was going to be calling from the states. And he said, so, Chief, you know, how, how did you get through this deployment? And the first word out of my mouth was meditation. And I, I don't think he was expecting that. But it, it's what gets me through. And, you know, on a good day, if I can manage it, I'll meditate for half an hour. Um, some days I can't quite get that much. And, and, you know, some days when I'm preparing to do a talk, um, I try to meditate for a few hours. And that's, that's kind of hard to shoehorn into the schedule these days. But I love it when I can get it. Mm-hmm. So we're getting close to the time I'm going to have to wrap up here. Is there anything in particular that you want to, a thought you might want to leave with with our listeners? Um, Yeah, you know, no matter how bad it is, if you're willing to do the deal, it gets better. And, you know, by do the deal, I mean if you're willing to go into recovery. Um, You know, from my own experience and from the experience of the people that I've seen, I've seen people whose bottom was much lower than mine uh, go through this thing and and simply by being willing to be honest with themselves and being willing to do the work, their their lives become something that they had not known possible. You know, yes, there will be unpleasant things to go through. Yes, you will still have to go through consequences from when you were out there drinking or using or whatever, but... You don't have to throw in the towel here. You don't have to die here. You know, addiction is not a hill that anybody has to die on. And if we are willing to get out of our own head, and if we are willing to be of service and help another human being, beyond our wildest dreams can come true. Well, thank you, Charles, for for sharing your experience, strength, and hope with us today and um, the long and winding journey that you've taken to to have this life of your dreams today. Um, Thanks I know for having that, me, Lonnie. Oh, it's absolutely. Been really great being here. Yeah. Absolutely. We appreciate that a lot. And I know that others will find hope in your story. So thank you, listeners, for being with us today. And if you would like, you can contact us on our Facebook page, Spirit of Recovery, share any thoughts or comments or feedback. And we will be here same time next Tuesday, 4 p.m. Central. Have a wonder-filled week.
Hello, listeners. Did you know we've gone mobile? That's right. Your favorite Unity online radio programs are available on your mobile device. Now you can take us with you wherever you go. Using apps from Live 365 or Stitcher, you can listen to Unity Online Radio live or on demand. To learn more, visit Unity Online Radio and click on Mobile Listening. You know the saying, a good deed is its own reward? Well, moving toward a plant-based diet and vegan lifestyle is one kind and compassionate act that isn't just its own reward. It will also reward you with vibrant health, boundless energy, an easy way to keep your weight where you want it, and according to Yogi's and Unity's co-founder Charles Fillmore, even give a boost to your spiritual life. On Main Street Vegan, the radio program named for the popular book, Victoria Moran will make your move in a vegan direction easy, fun, affordable, and delicious. With enticing topics and entertaining guests every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Central Time, only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. of spiritually conscious living start now for a time-tested method to live with purpose and release your infinite potential tune in to the yoga hour living the eternal way with yogacharya ellen grace o'brien every thursday morning at 10 a.m central 8 a.m pacific only on unity online radio the voice of an awakening world Life calls upon us to be open to new ideas, new creative ways of thinking, and new ways of doing things. All of the positive changes in our world have been the result of open-minded people looking at some aspect of their world in a whole new way. You can have a more exciting life filled with wonder and glory when you keep an open mind about the new and unusual things that come your way and when you take a new look at what you thought were life's ordinary experiences. Just like the turtle who won't get anywhere in life without sticking its neck out a little, we get a lot further in life by sticking our mental neck out a little every day. You can be open to the changes in your world by starting with your own thoughts. This message has been brought to you by the Association of Unity Churches International. To find a Unity Church near you, visit www.unity.org. Somewhere, tucked away in the Unity Library archives in Unity Village, Missouri, you can find a secret treasure. They are the scripts from Unity co-founder Charles Fillmore's early days on broadcast radio. The teachings of Unity's founders, almost a hundred years old. Now, for the first time in history, you can hear them through the power of the Internet. Join Bob Brock every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern, for Unity Classic Radio, Words from Our Past. Discover the wisdom of Charles Fillmore's talks and of other Unity Radio speakers read on the air again. Call in your comments and questions as Bob and his special guests revisit Unity Radio talks of the past, along with historical background from the early days of the Unity movement. That's Unity Classic Radio. Words from our past. Every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern. Right here on Unity FM. The voice of an awakening world. Hey, it's Radley Valentine. Join me for a brand new way of connecting with your angels on my new podcast, The Angel Tarot Show. Each week, you'll meet your angelic guides and guardians and find new ways to unlock unconditional love, tune into your intuitive abilities, and create the joy-filled life that, well, you've always wanted. Plus, you'll get a useful and timely energetic weather report, bringing you guidance for the coming week. Tap into the healing, hope, and guidance that's all around you on the Angel Tarot Show exclusively 
on mindbodyspirit.fm.